looking at a variety of passages this morning, including several that are printed in your bulletins. If you were not with us last week, and there are several faces here that I see that were not with us uh, last week, we began a new summer sermon series that is a biblical theology of eating and drinking. Uh, the title of the series, or the, the, the main title, would be Eat Hearty. Uh, and the idea of biblical theology, it's a little bit different than what we typically do in looking at one passage uh, or working our way through a book, is to kind of look at the scripture longitudinally and see how a particular topic, in this case eating and drinking, is developed over the course of scripture in a way that leads us to see Christ better, to know Christ more. And so that's what we started up. It's the third time, the third summer that we have done something like this. First we did the biblical theology of clothing and then of place and now of food and drink. Very simply then, what we saw last week is that the Word of God teaches us that which all of us instinctively know, that food and drink are good gifts that are given to us by God from the very beginning. That's where we started. We started in Genesis 1 and 2 and saw that these are given by God out of the largesse of his goodness, and that food and drink, that eating and drinking, are given to us not only to provide nourishment for us, to sustain us, they are indeed given for that purpose, but in addition to that, they're given for our enjoyment, for our ability to delight in the delightful God who has provided them in such abundance and in such variety. And I used a phrase uh, last week to say that God has supplied for us not only the necessary, but he has provided for us the unnecessary as well. That's lifted out of one of the books that I read in preparation for this series this summer. That's a good place for us to start. It's a good place for us to start because, frankly, that's where the Bible starts in its discussions about food and its discussions about everything. It starts off with them being created and them being created good. But as we have already read from Genesis chapter 3, complexity and rebellion are close on the heels of the giving of this good gift. In one sense, if you thought about these two sermons, this last week and this, you, you could look at last week and say that is the gift given, and then you could come to this week and you say the gift abused. Okay, so the gift given and the gift abused. And with pun intended, this week uh, we take on a note of sobriety when it comes to eating and drinking. So now as we prepare then for reading Matthew chapter 4, Genesis, particularly the section that we already read uh, in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis is the first place where food and drink are used as a test. And of course, they're used as a test by God. They are employed as a temptation by Satan. It's the first place that they're used, but it's not the last place where those things are used. So with that, let me read for us the temptation of our Lord as it is found in Matthew chapter 4. This is the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your strength. Thank you that you are the exact representation of your Father. Thank you that holiness bedecks you and it befits you and it is inside of you by the power of the Spirit whom indwelled you so that when this temptation came, you did not give in to it. You upheld your holiness and in so doing, upheld not only your own holiness, but the possibility for us to receive it as well. We rejoice in it. We thank you for it. And now we pray that as we look at this word together this morning, you would help us, your people, to understand it, to believe it, to live it well in our lives. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, at first blush... A sermon series on eating and drinking may seem to us to be fairly innocuous, fairly harmless, kind of a safe thing to talk about, a benign thing to talk about. Uh, eating and drinking are safe things, but be careful. Be aware the food is spicy, and uh, we can say it this way, the punch is spiked. The punch is spiked. It is, it is spiked with some really important questions about life. Food and drink spur questions about our hearts, questions about lordship, questions about who's in control, questions about what is good, questions about what do we truly want in life, for what are we hungry in this world, or to use uh, another expression, but one that is found in Scripture as well. What do we crave? Deep down inside, what do we crave in this world? Food is a matter of life and death, uh, physically and spiritually. Now, we live in an unusual time uh, in the world when we don't often think that way. Okay, there, there was a little bit of time over the past year during COVID when I suppose there were concerns raised about availability of certain things. 
and everybody went to the stores and got what they thought they would need because they were concerned that these things might disappear from the shelves as COVID entered into meat processing places and things like that. But for the most part, none of us who are sitting in this room right now have really ever experienced hunger, have really ever experienced starvation, have really appreciated the life and deathness that is associated with food and drink. But there it is, right? I mean, a second of reflection and we realize that, no, 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 it really is that significant for many people at many times in the history of this world. And eating and drinking are complex. As much as they are, and they are gifts from God, danger and abuse abound as they are connected to these things in this fallen world. Remember last week we read this scripture wherein they accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, they weren't accusing him of that just because they were trying to nitpick, just because they were trying to find something little to get at. They were accusing him of that because those were deep and significant things. Abuse of the gifts of God in his life. That's what they were accusing him of and they're matters of life and death. They're real. I would think, I would venture to say, that not all, but most of the families in this room, mine deeply included in this, have experienced, for example, the ravages of alcohol and alcoholism in the life of your family, or at least of someone who is pretty close to you. Many of us have also had uh, family members or friends or people that we know who have struggled significantly with eating disorders. And we could talk about all sorts of things that help us to see the difficulty and the significance of eating and drinking in this world. Our, and I want to use the phrase here that is currently in the modern parlance to talk about it, our relationship with food. 50 years ago, I don't know that anyone would have used that phrase, the relationship to food, but it is now used. Our relationship to food is complex. It's not as easy as it might seem right out of the chute, and so we ought to pay attention to it. Eating and drinking are to be enjoyed, but they come with a warning label. There's a warning label attached to them. So here's what I'd like to do today in order to help us to work through this. What I'd like to do is I'd like to put some biblical examples on the table for us. And then what I want to do is kind of put those together, cook them a little bit, and get from them a couple of principles. And then we'll taste and see how those can be applied to us. So first of all, let's do this. Let me get some things on the table. It's going to be a little bit messy. Uh, but we'll try to make sense of them as we go along. The biblical ingredients that I want to put on the table today, of course, coincide with the passages that we've just read already this morning. But they are the fact that food is used as a test. So that's going to be one category of things I want to put on the table. And then the other category is the way that we failed the test. Okay? So the test and then the failing at the test. Here are the two categories. Okay, the first test and the first uh, warning label, if you will, uh, is found, of course, in Genesis chapter 2. We didn't read this section, 
but let me read it for you. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, that tree is given to humanity as a test. In essence, what God says is, eat this, eat what is good, don't eat that. It's as simple as that. All of us know how many times our children put things in their mouth and you say, don't eat that. Our pets put things in your mouth and you say, don't eat that. And, and yet there are good things to eat and there are bad things to eat. And that's what God sets up. Uh, it's the first test, uh, but it is not the last. In one sense, we could look at Scripture and we could look at all of the famines. Think of all the famines for a moment that we see in Scripture. And in one sense, all of those famines include, as an aspect of them, a test, a question. And, and the question is simply this, where will you turn when you're hungry? When you're hungry and you're needy and you're desperate, to whom or where will you turn? But specifically, to look at another test, I put on the front of your bulletins uh, this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy, of course, they're on the edge of the promised land, and Moses is preaching to them, reflecting back on the time of the Exodus. And let me read these two verses that are on the front of your bulletin. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is another test. It is another paradigmatic test. If the garden is a paradigmatic test that we failed, and we read about it in not only the scriptures that we read, but we read about it uh, as well in the shorter catechism, then this becomes another paradigm of how God tests the people. Test them to see what is in your heart. And he does that by, in this placeless wilderness, by letting them hunger. What we see here is they, they, they just didn't hunger as a matter of fact, as something that happened. I let you hunger, says the Lord. The Lord let you hunger, and the Lord fed you with manna in the wilderness to test, to see what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. And so what we see here is that God uses both the hunger and the food that he gave to expose, to reveal, to show something that might otherwise be hidden and to bring it up so that we can see the state of the heart. Now, another uh, example of, a, of food being used as a test, and this is just a smaller one, this is not paradigmatic the way those first two are, would be in the feeding of the 5,000. Do you recall that in the feeding of the 5,000, there's a very small little verse in the middle of that where Jesus turns to Philip and says to Philip, Philip, 
where are we going to get bread for all of these people? And, and the scriptures say, he asked him this to test him. He asked that of him to test him because he already knew, Jesus that is, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. But he asked it to test Philip in those circumstances. Okay, now let's come to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 is a fusing of the two things that we saw as paradigms. The, 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 the temptation that exists in the garden not to eat of that tree and the temptation or the test that existed in the wilderness uh, as the people of God were being led through it. It's the fusing of those two tests in the temptation of our Lord. Now, we have to, we'll do this quickly, but we have to explain something here so that the words make sense to us. Just to remind us of what happens here, God tests us and the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us. Okay? God tests the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us. God doesn't test, of course, for his discovery. It's not that the state of our hearts are somehow unknown to God and he's just trying to figure out what's going on inside of us and so he's got to run a test to see if he really makes sense of these things or not because he's confused. No, he tests us to prove, to uncover. He tests us so that we can see God tests us for our good and whether we pass the test or whether we fail the test, either one of those are good for us. If we're going to fail the test, it's an exposure of our heart and we need to know about it. We need to see our heart exposed with respect to those things. So God tests for our good, whereas Satan tempts for our destruction. Does that make sense? The, the, the way that works between the two of them? Satan transforms these things. In, in Genesis chapter 3, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan turns the testing into a temptation by distortion, by obfuscation, by the lies that he tells attached to these things. And so food, and sometimes I'll just use food collectively so I don't have to say food and drink every time. So food becomes not only a test, it is also a temptation. And that's really not strange to us because our ears are used to hearing it that way and thinking of it that way. Think of this simple example. Think of the fact that sometimes you're out to dinner and you've had a nice meal out to dinner and the waiter brings around the dessert cart. And what do you say? Or the waiter might say, can I tempt you? Can I tempt you to this? Or you might say, don't tempt me. I can't handle that temptation. Don't tempt me. So we get it. We even understand still in just common everyday usage that there's that aspect that is associated with eating and drinking. So anyway, if, if God has used this as a test, Satan has used it as a temptation, the follow-up question is then, how'd the test go? Okay? The kid says, I've got a test at school today. The kid gets home and you say, how'd the test go? So how did this testing go? We all know the answer to this, right? The, the answer to this one is, well, not well. It, it did not actually go very well when we were tested with the food. Our first parents and we in them failed in the garden by eating the forbidden fruit. 
We, with Israel, failed in the wilderness by grumbling and by complaining about God's provision or lack thereof. Those are the benchmark failures with respect to eating and drinking. But there's plenty more that we can consider. Think of, for example, Noah, right? So Noah and the flood, and God assures Noah that which now seems obvious to us in retrospect, but wasn't at the time, God assures Noah that he's going to continue to provide food for him and that the earth will continue to produce for him. So in other words, Noah, you're going on dry land now, but I'm now going to repeat the processes that I began at creation. It's still going to provide for you. Well, then we read Noah planted a vineyard and he got drunk right away, right? It's, it's another failure, boom, right out of the gate from this recreation that takes place once again. Or, or think of Esau. The Bible also holds this up as an example for us. So Esau is famished. He's hungry. Now, he wouldn't have starved if he had to wait just a few minutes before he ate. But in his desperation, he sells his birthright to his brother so that he can have a little pot of, maybe a big pot, of lentil stew. And the Bible says, no, you, you sold your birthright? You sold the, the blessing that I have given to you, the goodness of me, you undercut me for lentil stew? Now, we think of Esau's sin in this. How about Jacob's? You could have just given him the stew. Presumably, Jacob wasn't starving at the time since he had a pot of stew right there. You could have just given it to him. Or think of a little bit later. Part of Jacob's deception, part of the way Jacob will misuse and abuse food is to use it to deceive his father about his own identity. Uh, think of the Exodus, think of the incident of the golden calf when we read the scriptures. What do we read? That the people of Israel uh, ate and drank and they rose up to play. And listen, eating, drinking, playing, okay, as words in and of themselves, in that context, not good. Bad, not good things. Or think of the parable of our Lord Jesus about the rich fool. Who, who thought he had everything, thought he had it all covered, thought he was an autonomous self and he could take care of himself. And so he says, eat, drink, and be merry. And he is a fool. Paul rebukes Peter for his exclusive eating in Galatians. And we could look through the letters of the New Testament and see how many of them address issues of eating and drinking. Acts, the book of Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, uh, uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, at least all of those, and even into Hebrews as well. All of those books address the abuse associated with eating and drinking. The Corinthians, Paul wrote lots to them about eating and drinking to address all of their questions and all of their situations, but they were even messing up the Lord's Supper. They were abusing the Lord's Supper as well. In fact, with all of the failure with respect to food and drink, the fact that it's so common, one might wonder, God, why did you put it here at all? Why not just, I don't know, a pill? Just take the pill in the morning. It's all you need. It's a, not only a multivitamin, it's just a multi-everything. Just take that one and everything else will be fine. We'll get this thing out of the way, we'll get it off the table. And I think in some senses, that's why the New Testament addresses those who would put so many regulations around food, in particular, don't eat it, don't taste this. 
in order to try and somehow minimize the temptation, minimize the risk that is associated with food. So what I think we can see in the Bible is that food is a fulcrum. From the, from the earliest state of humanity, it is a fulcrum by which God assesses the heart, by which he looks into the heart and says, okay, I'm going to use this. Seems good, seems innocuous. I'm going to use this to get a look inside of your heart. Test your fidelity, your fealty in this way. Now, it's not the only means by which God tests. It's not the only one he uses, but it's one of them. Now, here's the next question that I'd like to ask as we kind of got the mess on the table there of a lot of verses. The, the next question I want to ask is, is in looking at these passages, is there any way to reduce them so that we can answer the question of why? Why, are, why is such importance attached to food and drink? I don't think it's random. I don't think God just was looking for something to be a test and said, well, look, food, we'll, we'll make that the test. Why is that the one that is so pivotal? pivotal? Now, that it is pivotal is, of course, clear. God commands, don't eat of that tree. It's the focal point of obedience. But why? Why? I think there's at least two reasons that I want to suggest for us this morning. Here's reason number one. Reason number one, looking at all those passages of why eating and drinking is so pivotal, is that they are, eating and drinking, fundamental activities. Fundamental activities, they're, they're primary, they're foundational, they are essential, they're sine qua non type of things, right? You don't do them and you will, in fact, die. They're basic, they're elemental, they're primary, they're principal issues. We need to eat, and as such, eating and drinking cut to the core of our needs and our desires and our wants. Our life is dependent on eating and drinking. But as basic as they are, there is a dependency which is more basic. And that is the dependency on the creator of the food and his word. Uh, even those of you who may not have been psych majors, I was a psych major probably have seen or heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay, the, the triangle. What, what's at the base? At the base of the hierarchy of needs is physical needs, physicality. You need warmth, you need food, you need shelter. You need food, drink, warmth, shelter, I think that's what they are, something like that. Do you see? It missed the base. <laughs> It missed the base. It, that's, that's, that's the deception. The deception is that's the base. It's not the base. The base is the creator upon whom all of that rests. And that's the issue with food and drink. You're tempted to see it as you know, baseline. And it's not baseline. It's on top of something else, of a better foundation. And so the basic question of food and drink is will you base your dependency on God himself, or will you pursue independence and self-reliance and autonomy? That is the basic question for Adam and Eve. It was the basic question for Israel in the wilderness. It is the basic question that Jesus faced in his temptation in the wilderness, and it is for us as well. What do we want? And what is the source 
of good? Who can you trust? Upon whom can you depend? Uh, there was an old idiom. It's probably now a politically incorrect idiom, be that as it may. The old idiom was this. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Through his stomach. Now, in one sense, the Bible looks at that and goes, yeah, okay. I'm going to get to your heart. I'm going to see what's going on in your heart by what you put in your stomach. Your stomach will tell me some things that other things don't tell me. I'll give you a couple of examples. Philippians 3.19, describing the enemies of Christ, we read, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Romans 16, 18, warning against divisiveness. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, which is to say their own bellies. See, eating brings in this fundamental question of who or what is our master? Whom do we serve? In fact, Paul reflects on this very thing when he's addressing the Corinthians, and he says to them, I don't want to be mastered by anything by anything in this world, even the things that are most essential in this world, food and drink. I don't want to be mastered by those things. Okay, so that's the number one reason for food being a test is because it is so fundamental. Here's the number two reason. Eating and drinking are acts of partaking, acts of participation. When we eat and drink, we take these things into ourselves. And when we eat and drink with others, we take the same thing that is then in the person who is next to me, and that thing that is in them is a thing that is in me as well. It is an act of participating and partaking in one another, an act of uniting, an act of bringing together. So if you come over to my house, and we have a lasagna together, or we have lasagna and a pitcher of water or a bottle of wine together, then, then that food is in me and it's also in you. And in that way, we're partaking of the same thing and we're connected to one another because we have some of the same stuff. In other words, eating and drinking are acts, and I'm using this word intentionally, they are acts of oneness. Now we think of that word in Genesis with respect to Adam and Eve and their relationship with one another. Fair enough, that's appropriate. But that's what eating and drinking are as well. They are acts of communion, acts of bringing things together and deep down inside of us. Let me give an absurd example here for a moment, but I, I hope it illustrates the point. Here's the absurd example. God did not say to Adam and Eve, listen, for six days of the week, you can jump. You can jump as much as you like. You can jump to your heart's delight. But on Thursdays, no jumping. Thursdays is a jump-free day. God didn't do that because while jumping may be fun, jumping isn't fundamental. It's not at the core of who we are. And so God chooses this particular thing to help us to see that eating and drinking bring us into union with something. 
Let me read this for you now, John chapter 6, in light of what I've just said. Listen to what Jesus is saying. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What Jesus is saying is, do you want to have communion? Do you want a transformation of your eating and drinking? You must eat me. You must drink me. If you want abiding, you have to eat me. You have to feast on me. Jesus is the one who is the life. And he says to them, listen, if you want to partake of life, you have to partake of me. Now, listen to Paul reflecting this exact same idea when he's addressing the Corinthians. Now, as I said, the Corinthians had any number of difficulties associated with eating and drinking. In the section that I'm about to read for us, the Corinthians are trying to figure out with whom they should eat and in what setting can they partake of food. What, what about all these pagan festivals and feasts and meat that's offered in different places? And Paul here uses the example of the Lord's Supper and transfers it first to Israel and then to them in their present context. Okay, that's, that's the way this argument is going to go. So Paul, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body. So, so you got the idea here, right? Partaking of Christ, you're going this way. You are partaking of Christ. But as we have all partaken of Christ, the connection goes not only to Christ, but the connection goes to one another as well as we've all feasted upon him, taken him in to us. Let me continue that. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and partake of the table of demons. Do you see the connection? Do you see why food there is so integral? In the Bible then, we could say it like this, you are what you eat, unto life or unto death. You are what you eat. You partake of that which you eat. In ourselves, we failed the test. We succumbed to the temptation, a fundamental rejection of dependence on God, and becoming not just an observer of the rebellion of Satan, but a partaker of it, a participant of it. We took the food of rebellion and we put it inside of us. And as the forbidden food entered into the mouths and the stomachs of our first parents, so sin entered into our hearts and minds, and it became part of us. We became one with it. 
All right, so two things in conclusion today, and these are things that we'll unpack a little bit more in weeks to come. First and foremost, there is a Savior who did not partake of the temptation, who did not eat and create bread contrary to the will of his Father. Our first parents fell because they ate contrary to the express word of God, our Lord Jesus Christ did not eat, did not eat in that temptation, and so secured for himself holiness and to all who would feast upon him holiness as well. But what he did do, and now we're talking by way of analogy, but nevertheless the analogy fits, what he did do at the end of his life is he took the cup of the wrath of God, and that one he drank. That one he drank. He drank the cup of the wrath of God to the full, thus purchasing for us forgiveness. In righteousness, he didn't eat. In forgiveness, he did drink. And the call that we've got, first and foremost, with all of the stuff we've put on the table then, is to feast upon Jesus. We fell by what we ate. We are recovered by what we eat in faith. And as by faith we feast on Christ, we are restored to table fellowship with him. We ran from the table. We were then excluded from the table. And by the work of the Son of God, the bread of life, we are called back to a seat at the table. Come back into fellowship with me and eat with me. Second thing is this. That's primary. Second thing is this. I think this should awaken us to an awareness of what we do on a practical level with relationship to food and drink. Those things might seem to us to be innocuous. They might seem to us to be easy things, but they are complex and they are important. And that is why many people, in, in many ways, all of us, just the, the manifestation may be different, struggle with them, struggle to do those things well and in a good way. Our relationship to food is a complex relationship. And we can at least, from all of these examples, I hope, be aware of that, be attentive to what the scriptures then have to say about those things and at least understand why. Because cursings and blessings abound at the table. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, listen, judge yourselves. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Think about these things because, because as he says, God wants us to glorify him with our bodies with our bodies and soul. God wants us to glorify him. And he concludes the section that I read for us then a little bit earlier where I will conclude today, saying then, in spite of all the failures, but now with the redemption that is accomplished in Christ, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, uh, you know our hearts. You know our hearts. And we pray 
that through our lives in this world, through your word and your spirit, primarily through our brothers and sisters, and even through, through things like eating and drinking, that you would help us to see our hearts, help us to understand aspects of them so that we can confess and repent where we need to, so that we at least understand the complexity where we need to understand that, and so that we can seek in our lives, even in our eating and drinking, to glorify you. We pray that you would be honored in us, that you would be honored in us body and soul, that you'd be honored in us in life and in death. And we pray this, Jesus, with thanksgiving for the fact that you honored your Father, body and soul, 